Military murder is an independent project and is not endorsed by the Department of Defense or any military component. The views expressed are those of the host. The content of this podcast is not meant to be legal or medical advice. Warning, this episode contains graphic details of murder and is not suitable for young listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back, True Crime Army. I am your host, Margot, and this is Military Murder, a show where I focus on crimes committed by military members and veterans. But don't worry, you don't have to know anything about the military to listen, I promise. You just have to be a true crime enthusiast, and if that's you, welcome home. A few years back, I did a serial killer series, and some of you loved it, but some of you hated it. So this summer, instead of a full-blown serial killer back-to-back series, I decided to sprinkle in the serial killer stories. If you didn't catch last month's Patreon slash premium episode, you may want to go back and listen because I covered a serial killer by the name of Bobby Joe Long, a man who terrorized Tampa in the early 80s. Well, today I'm bringing you a unique case. First, it's the oldest case I've ever covered and it's a death penalty case where the death penalty was actually executed. Also, it's the only case of a serial killer where I've heard he lights up a room when he enters it. Yep, this is a doozy of a case. Join me today as I tell you the story of a little herd serial killer by the name of Eddie Lenoski, or as he was known by the media, the Brownout Strangler. Now, let's dig in. My main source for today's episode is a book by Ian W. Shaw titled Murder at Dusk. Content warning, this episode does include the discussion of rape. Listener discretion is advised. Our case today is set in Melbourne, Australia during World War II. It's late 1941 and the Australian government has asked the United States for help in fending off Japanese forces. The U.S. was led by President Franklin Roosevelt and the military was led by General Douglas MacArthur. Now, today's episode is not a history lesson for all you history buffs out there, so please don't come at me for my generalizations today, okay? During this period of the war, Australia had put brownouts into place into all coastal capital cities in Australia. Author Ian W. Shaw wrote in his book, Murder at Dusk, that brownouts were put into place to evade air raids. Brownouts occurred at night and consisted of conserving energy, screening in streetlights, and keeping the streets dimly lit to avoid being seen. Headlights were covered and speed limits were lowered to avoid accidents with dimly lit roads. Well, during this time frame, late 1941 and early 1942, U.S. troops were arriving in Australia, but the governments were trying to keep it hush-hush. Two convoys arrived in the country on February 1, 1942, the Calvin Coolidge and the USS Phoenix. Little did the Australian people know that among those Americans who arrived that day would be a soldier who would become a serial killer in their country. But until this became a reality, Australians loved Americans. Americans were known for getting things done. They also were paid handsomely for their work in the military, equaling up to double the amount of money that Australian workers made. And this meant that Americans were willing to spend some cash in their country, which was really good for the Australian economy. But American men were also known for keeping the attention of the Australian ladies, and the Australian military men did not like this. Doreen Justice was a young woman who grew up in Melbourne but relocated to Sydney after she got married. However, recently, Doreen relocated back to Melbourne with her one-year-old as a means to be closer to family to overcome an ailment. In late April 1942, Doreen was living at 80 Gray Street. 
on this particular day, Doreen had dropped off her baby with her mom while she ran some errands. By 5 p.m., Doreen had exited the tram towards her house when an American soldier bumped into her. He asked her for directions and she kindly pointed him that way. Doreen continued her walk to her apartment and as she was fixing to enter her house, she realized from the corner of her eye that someone was following her. It was the American soldier. By the time Doreen could do anything about it, the soldier pushed his way into the apartment as they both crashed into the actual apartment. The soldier shoved Doreen onto the couch, but she bowed up to him and stood asking him to leave. He told her to shut up and if she made any sudden noises or screams that he would kill her. Doreen was not about that life, so she confronted him again, at which point the soldier grabbed her by the neck and squeezed until Doreen blacked out. By the time she came to, the soldier was carrying her to the bed. The man then removed his clothing. Doreen saw the man's erect penis and noted a birthmark right on his pecker, and she made a mental note of it. Thinking of a way to survive, Doreen told the soldier she couldn't breathe and she said she just needed a drink of water. The soldier, clearly annoyed by the woman's simple request, yanked Doreen by the arm into the kitchen and allowed her to get a drink of water. As she drank, she took the opportunity to run like hell towards the front door. She didn't struggle too much to get the door open because it was unlocked. And Doreen ran fast down the hallway, screaming. The naked soldier ran after Doreen, catching her and grabbing her by the waist as he attempted to take her back into her apartment. When all of a sudden, one of Doreen's neighbors opened the door, wondering what all the ruckus was about. The neighbor, Mrs. O'Neill, quickly called out to her husband as the naked soldier released Doreen. Doreen ran into Mrs. O'Neill's apartment as the soldier went back into Doreen's apartment, locked the door to get dressed. Doreen told Mrs. O'Neill exactly what happened. Mrs. O'Neill wanted to contact authorities, but Doreen said absolutely not. Apparently, Doreen's husband hated cops and she opined by the time that the cops got there anyway, the perpetrator would be gone. And also, she didn't want to be victim blamed. So with that, the American soldier snuck out of the apartment and back into anonymity without a report made. However, when Doreen re-entered her now empty apartment, she did find an army singlet with the initials EJL. Doreen wouldn't be the only, quote, lucky one to escape the grasps of this soon-to-be serial killer. You see, down at the St. Moritz ice rink in St. Kilda, a woman was ice skating her little heart out when a handsome soldier asked her if he could join her. The woman kindly said, no thanks. Later, when the woman was waiting for her tram, the soldier showed back up. He got close to her and said, quote, I'm thinking of choking a dame and it might as well be you. He then grabbed her by the neck, causing the woman to black out. Just as the soldier was crouching down, the tram showed up and the man ran into anonymity again. The woman was clearly traumatized, but survived and never reported the incident. This soldier's next victims would not escape his grasp. Hi, everyone. For anyone who follows me on Instagram, I recently posted a picture of me with my kiddos at Disney in front of the Disney castle. But I posted it because my shoulders were looking on fire, defined, toned, and overall just pleasant to look at. So many of you asked me in my DMs for my secret. And of course, my secret is 4 a.m. workouts. But I get the oomph to wake up at 4 a.m. and work out from my pre-workout drink called Energy Explosion. My pre-workout powder was created by world-renowned fitness guru Natalia Melofit. 
I have been following Natalia for many years now. And in fact, after my second C-section, I hired her as my fitness trainer. And she also helped me postpartum with my third C-section as well. So when she came out with a pre-workout supplement that didn't cause any of the jitters and the crashing, I knew I needed to try it. Energy Explosion helps with energy and it keeps me going all through the morning hours. Because I take it first thing in the morning, which is when I choose to work out, I no longer require that morning cup of joe. This pre-workout has nootropic ingredients, which significantly help me personally with mental clarity and focus. Which listen, when you're juggling what feels like hundreds of tasks a day, it truly does help. And guess what? My listeners are getting 15% off your order. What? Yes, please. If you're ready to get the pump without the jitters, visit mbodysup.com and enter my code MAMAMARGO at checkout for 15% off your order. That's M as in Mike, body, sup as in Sierra, uniform, papa, papa, dot com. Add energy explosion to your cart and use my code MAMAMARGO, that's M-A-M-A-M-A-R-G-O-T for 15% off. Enjoy. And when you use it, please DM me so we can talk about your workouts. Ivy Violet McLeod was 39 years old and living in Melbourne. While Ivy McLeod was her legal married name, Ivy and her husband had been separated for many years. So she wasn't really a McLeod anymore. She actually went by her maiden name, Ivy Dargavel. By this point in her life, Ivy had met a new man and they were just having fun together, although they were already thinking about their future. The man's name was John Thompson, and he was a veteran. On May 2nd, 1942, Ivy met up with John at his place, and they hung out and talked about life in the future. By 1.30 a.m. on May 3rd, Ivy realized that time had gotten ahead of her. As she told John she was leaving, he offered to walk her to the tram. But Ivy coyly told John no, it was only five minutes away. And with that, she left on her own. Ivy arrived at the tram stop, but then she realized she just missed a tram. She looked for a taxi, but seeing none in sight, she snuck into a little alcove between two stores near a bar. The bar was attached to the Bleak House Hotel, which is morbid when you learn what happens next. As Ivy stood in hiding, an American soldier walked by. He peeked in the alcove and told Ivy she scared him. Ivy apologized and told him she was just waiting on the tram. A brief discussion between the two ensued and the soldier asked Ivy if he could stand with her. Ivy said that that was fine, and the soldier then placed his arm around her shoulders. And that's when he grabbed her neck with his left arm and then squeezed Ivy's neck with both hands. It didn't take long for Ivy to collapse. The soldier didn't realize how quickly Ivy would fall, so he fell to the ground with her. When the soldier realized that Ivy was dead, he was kind of proud of himself. He liked the feeling of killing and would most definitely do it again. The soldier then posed Ivy's body, exposing her in an even more humiliating manner. As the soldier heard footsteps coming, he scurried away and vanished. The footsteps came from Harold Gibson, a hotel employee just making his way to work. As Harold crossed the street, he saw a shadow in the alcove. He saw a man leaving the area, so he peeked inside, and that's when he discovered Ivy's dead body. Harold ran to the phone booth and reported what he found. When the medical examiner arrived, he determined the woman had been dead for four to six hours. When the story was later reported, Ivy was described as completely nude, with her clothes laying near her body. Sadly, Ivy's boyfriend John had gone to bed that night thinking Ivy arrived home safely. 
he would later hear about the grisly murder across the street by his landlady. When John picked up the newspaper, he wasn't immediately aware it was Ivy because he knew her by her maiden name, Ivy Dargavel, but it listed the victim as Ivy McLeod. As soon as he put two and two together, John went down to the station and gave the cops a timeline of Ivy's night before her murder. John was quickly written off as a suspect. And even though Harold had reported the man who was walking away from the alcove where Ivy's body was discovered as a soldier, the decision was made early on in the investigation that the police would not involve or raise any alarms with American forces. When the news got out about Ivy's murder in the alcove across from the Bleak House Hotel, the police got tons of leads. There were so many American soldiers who hung out in that spot. One anonymous caller simply told authorities he saw a soldier kneeling over a girl in the alcove. Another anonymous caller who called Army headquarters at Camp Pell, the nearby Army base, said, quote, about that dame who was murdered the other night, you should tell them to look for a man who walks on his hands, end quote. Now, you have to remember, the Army was not really paying attention to the murder of the Australian woman. So this anonymous call to the headquarters didn't make sense at the time but it soon would become crystal clear. Pauline Thompson was in her late 20s. She had a lovely singing voice and was trying to break into the radio industry. As an entertainer, Pauline went by various stage names. One of her stage names was Coral O'Brien. She was married with two kids and living in the city of Bendigo. I'm not sure if I said that right, I'm sorry. But for financial reasons in 1942, the couple decided that Pauline and their daughter would relocate to Melbourne. The family would stay close and see each other on weekends, but for now, this was the most financially savvy decision. On May 8th, Pauline and her husband and son met briefly and got to enjoy each other's company. Later that day, Pauline had plans to meet up with an American soldier friend that she had recently met. But when Pauline went to the restaurant, the soldier didn't show up. Pauline sat there a little bit disappointed when a different unknown American soldier asked to sit with her. Pauline agreed, informing him that she had been stood up. The soldier sat down and told Pauline that he liked the cafe, but he really wanted an alcoholic drink. Pauline was like, oh, there's a place up the street. When the handsome soldier invited her for a drink, she figured her other male friend could wait. So off Pauline went. Pauline left with the soldier and ended up at the lounge at the Astoria Hotel. The male soldier inquired about Pauline's life and she told him some truths, but she also told him some lies such as telling the soldier she wasn't married. Throughout the night, Pauline used her beautiful vocal cords to sing sweet nothings to her soldier, and they seemed to be hitting it off. The soldier offered to walk Pauline home, and when they got to her front door, Pauline went in for a kiss, and instead of a kiss, the soldier extended his arms, wrapped his hands around Pauline's neck, and killed her right there on her door stoop. Pauline's door stoop was kind of hidden. The soldier thought killing Pauline was easy, then, secure in his anonymity, the soldier raped Pauline's dead body, then posed her just as he had done with his first victim. Then he slipped away, but not before taking some cash from Pauline's purse. When Pauline's body was discovered just days after another woman was discovered dead, the public began to panic. Two murders within a week, the media took the story and ran. As we do today, the media was eager to come up with a moniker for the killer, if it was in fact the same killer. As I mentioned earlier, Melbourne was experiencing these brownouts at night to avoid any attacks. So with that, the media really wanted to name this guy something. 
they were kind of thinking he should be called the Australian Jack the Ripper, or maybe the Melbourne murderer, or maybe the soldier strangler. No, no, none of that made sense. Oh, they got it. The brownout strangler. Yep, the brownout strangler. When they dug into Pauline's last known whereabouts the day she died, they realized that Pauline left the bar with an American soldier. Bingo. Two murder victims last seen with an American GI. Although the Australian authorities did not want to spook the Americans because they were seen as heroes, they were left without a choice. They had to inform the leadership at Camp Pell. In addition to getting the Americans in the loop, the Brownout Strangler case now had a full-time team assigned to it. Eight full-time detectives plus a team of part-timers. But in the meantime, while the team looked for the Brownout Strangler, he picked his next victim, Gladys Lillian Hosking. Gladys Lillian Hosking was a smart cookie. She was educated and had just been picked out of a pool of 300 candidates to become the secretary to the head of the Department of Chemistry at the University of Melbourne. At the time, she was living in a boarding house located at 140 Park Street. The boarding house was located very close to Camp Pell, and on top of being a secretary, Gladys was into theater and performance and on occasion had been on Camp Pell to participate in rehearsals. Well, on May 18th, Gladys got out of work at around 6.30 p.m. And after chatting briefly with a coworker, she made her way home. She was carrying an umbrella. As she was walking, a soldier barreled into her and quickly apologized. The soldier and Gladys exchanged quick pleasantries as the soldier offered to walk Gladys home and she accepted. As they arrived at the boarding house, the man asked Gladys to point him in the direction of Camp Pell. Gladys, always the helpful one, told the soldier she'd do him one better. Instead of pointing him in that direction, she'd walk him that way. Gladys walked the man not too far, but almost right up to Camp Pell, as they disappeared between two military vehicles. Gladys told the soldier goodbye and turned to leave. But that's when the soldier struck. He grabbed Gladys by the neck and right there behind the trucks and out of everyone's sight, he killed her. The soldier dragged Gladys's lifeless body near a fence and then took off. As he took off, he tripped and a camp guard stopped and spoke with the soldier briefly. Gladys's lifeless body was discovered the very next morning by a butcher on his way to work. In the daylight, the butcher noticed that the deceased woman was laying on a mound of yellow dirt. Of course, he quickly reported what he found and it wasn't long until the team assigned to the Brownout Strangler case was at the scene. The team immediately jumped into action. They spoke to the morning gate guard and learned how the trucks were parked, when they were commonly moved, and how they were guarded overnight. The team found the overnight guards and learned that there was a soldier in that area the night prior and that the soldier had some sort of yellow dirt on him. The team also discovered that while it did not appear that Gladys had been raped, she did have that yellow dirt around her genital area, which appeared as if it had been placed there deliberately. Whoever killed Gladys didn't care if the detectives knew who she was, because near her body, they discovered Gladys's purse with her identification in it. The brownout strangler team was already eager to find the killer, but now they knew they were zeroing in, particularly because of the unique crime scene. This yellow dirt was so unique to this area, and the killer had left behind clues. At this point, there was no doubt in the team's mind that they were looking for a killer soldier. With Camp Pell's leadership permission, they put the entire base on lockdown. But as indicated in Ian Shaw's book, this quote lockdown 
Well, the order was a bit elastic as soldiers were still coming and going as they pleased. The investigative team got permission to go onto Camp Pell and make contact with as many soldiers as possible. They also had access to incident reports and logs, and that's where they discovered the incident report near where Gladys's body was found. They found the report of the soldier who had tripped and was just sort of running off near their military vehicles. He was caked in yellow dirt. Bingo, they now had an eyewitness. The team was zeroing in, but they had to move quickly because as they were narrowing down on the killer soldier, the soldiers at Camp Pell were preparing to move out of the area for the war efforts because, of course, the war doesn't stop because a killer soldier is on the loose. As you might recall early on, there was this random tip that came in, some, something about an American possible killer walking on his hands. Well, after Gladys's death, they got a name of a guy who walked on his hands. But they only got a first name, but that was a start. His name was Eddie. Just as they got the name, one of the initial surviving victims, yes, there was more than one, well, one of the victims of the brownout strangler decided she was ready to come forward and she had actually seen his face. And let's not forget about Doreen who got away, who has that army singlet with the initial EJL on it. And she very vividly remembered the birthmark on the man's penis. What? Detectives couldn't believe their ears. And then they got the lead they were hoping for. On Wednesday, May 20th, the day after Gladys's body was discovered, a soldier came forward to a supervisor who then took an official statement from the soldier named Anthony Joey Gallo. It turned out that Joey believed his best friend might be the brownout strangler. In fact, his friend Eddie Leonowski had confessed to the first two murders. Joey just hadn't come forward because he thought his friend was playing a prank on him. But before Joey could get any of this information to the team responsible for finding the brownout strangler, across the base, one of the victim's family members, an uncle who had saved his niece from the brownout strangler, was just walking across the base with investigators when he saw a gaggle of soldiers shooting the shit. When he stopped dead in his tracks and pointed to a soldier and said, that's the man that attacked my niece. That's the man. The man was a soldier by the name of Private Eddie Leonowski. Eddie was immediately taken into custody for questioning. And just like that, a serial killer was caught. Recently, I covered two unsolved cases, which I am sure caused you to pause and analyze your inner detective. Well, if you want to hone in on that inner detective, then you need to check out June's Journey. June's Journey is a mobile game that you can play anywhere while connected to Wi-Fi. June's Journey takes you through the main character, June's, adventure to uncover family secrets. Her first task is to uncover the mystery of her sister's death. You will be using your keen eye to spot hidden clues in the immersive scenes that take you across the globe. The scene is set in the 1920s, so it's like going back in time. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game, and I love playing while waiting for my kids at the bus stop. It allows me to clear my mind from the tasks of the day and to refocus on my mommy duties. What I love about June's Journey is that not only are you searching for objects, but you can join other players online in a detective club. And then you also get to design this luxurious island estate that is all yours. And if you have friends who play, you can gift each other trees, flowers, and other amazing decorative items. Today, I invite you to escape reality and immerse yourself in the world of June Parker. 
Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Go ahead, download June's Journey today. Edward Joseph Leonowski, who went by Edward, service number 32007434, was born to John and Amelia Leonowski. Eddie's father, John, was born in Russia in the late 1860s, and his mother, Amelia, was born in Portugal in 1888. They both met and married in New York City, eventually moving the family to New Jersey. The family went on to have five children from 1909 through 1917. Eddie, the subject of today's episode, was the youngest child. John was a hardworking father, but he was a very bad alcoholic. He was also an abuser, assaulting not only his wife, but also his children. While a woman leaving an abusive husband in the early 1900s is almost unheard of, that's exactly what Amelia did. She packed up her five kids and moved back to New York City in the late 1920s. While the kids were happy to settle into a life free of violence, that feeling of relief didn't last long because Amelia met another man. This man was also an alcoholic and abusive. The only difference was that this man would leave for long periods of time, but he always came back. Eddie was a mama's boy. He suffered, however, watching his mother also fall victim to alcoholism. As a single mom, Amelia could not handle the stress of raising five kids, and in 1928, she suffered two nervous breakdowns and was diagnosed with manic depressive disorder, and many believed that she was borderline schizophrenic. But Eddie's mom could do no wrong in his eyes. Eddie was very competitive and loved baseball and handball. As he got older, he got into bodybuilding, weightlifting, boxing, and wrestling. He finished going to traditional school after junior high school, but he went through a three-year secretarial training program. And he was a smart cookie, graduating number 20 out of 291 students. After his studies, he worked at a department store and then a large grocery store. And it was there where Eddie is described as having a very open and engaging smile that could, quote, light up a room, end quote. I still can't believe that. But listen, behind the scenes, Eddie was already a scam artist, shortchanging customers and then bragging about it. But that was just the start of his criminal activity. Eventually, Eddie got caught up breaking into warehouses to steal items of value. According to author Shaw, Eddie was confronted by an armed guard, but he ignored the man and walked off. The guard shot at Eddie but missed, and Eddie got away. By the mid to late 1930s, Mama Amelia appeared to have recovered from her breakdowns, but she was still aloof. The oldest Lonowski brother had kind of gone off to do his own thing. The only girl in the family had taken over the role of caregiver, and one of Eddie's brothers had been diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia, and in 1940, he was institutionalized for good. Eddie's brother John was a small-time criminal. During this time, John met a woman named Mae Black, and they were married. She was described in the book as, quote, big and blonde and full of sass, end quote. Well, during the marriage, John got caught up in a crime and went to jail for two years. And it was during his stint in jail that Eddie, our main character today, and May, his sister-in-law, got close. Much closer than a guy and his sister-in-law should get. Yep, they started to hook up. May Black appeared to start the sexual relationship with Eddie for fun, but Eddie got involved with body and soul and he became obsessed with May. And well, in February of 1941, standing at six foot tall, blonde hair, blue eyes, and a body most men would kill for, Eddie Leonowski was drafted into the U.S. Army. 
When Eddie Leonowski involuntarily joined the army, he began to take up a family tradition he should have probably stayed away from, alcohol. And Eddie didn't just indulge a little bit. He indulged a lot, taking in anywhere from 20 to 30 drinks at a time. Once, he told another soldier, he drank to get his brother's wife off his mind. From Fort Dix, New Jersey to Fort Sam Houston, Eddie joined the 52nd Signal Battalion, and because of his certifications, he was snagged up by the battalion headquarters as a general clerk. While Eddie was coming up the ranks, he was not really a people person, staying to himself often, but he loved physical fitness. Part of this included sparring slash boxing, and Eddie was obsessed, but his sparring and boxing opponents were not happy to go up against him because he was good, like really good, but also kind of unfair. But it wasn't about being good. It was more or less that once Eddie started, he would lose all his senses. He would lose control. An opponent who was tapping out was not an option because when Eddie got into the groove of punches or more like pummeling his opponent, he wouldn't stop. It would often take a gaggle of soldiers to restrain Eddie. Meanwhile, the opponent was praying to survive the attack. And when Eddie had liberty, One of his favorite places to go was the red light district. And this is where we would begin to see a glimpse of Eddie's future. On April 13th, 1941, Eddie was arrested and charged with assault. Eddie had allegedly met a woman named Beatrice Sanchez. He then assaulted her by striking her and then strangled her with his hands. Beatrice managed to escape and reported Eddie. But this case didn't go anywhere because the people who worked in an office setting with him thought highly of Eddie, and Eddie did not get in trouble for strangling the woman. Well, as I said, Eddie didn't make friends, but he did find solace in an army buddy by the name of Anthony Joey Gallo. Gallo was also from New York, but he was much smaller than Eddie. And of course, being small, Joey got bullied a lot. That is, until Eddie got involved. Once Joey and Eddie linked up, the bullying stopped and Joey was excited. By late 1941, the soldiers were told they would be heading overseas to assist with the war efforts. And until then, they would be on lockdown. Eddie was not a fan of this instruction. And without a worry in the world, Eddie walked away from the military base. Hours later upon his return, he was charged with breaking restriction and he was confined to base and fined. Weeks later, in January of 1942, Eddie Leonowski was one of 4,550 Americans who boarded the Mariposa heading towards Melbourne, Australia. Upon arriving in Melbourne, Eddie was based out of Camp Pell. He was bunked in tent 16, row 4. He had three bunk mates. Eddie was assigned to kitchen duty, kitchen patrol to be exact. And the thing about kitchen patrol is that because he was only assigned to breakfast duty, He would only have to work a few hours a day and then he was free to be off duty for the rest of the day. This would prove a deadly mistake for this violent alcoholic. But wait, before he would ever have the opportunity to turn his life upside down, the company sergeant saw potential in Eddie. Eddie was a good looking guy and on top of that, he was a hella secretary. He had the educational background and he could type like no other. So they pulled Eddie up to the front desk, but listen to this. By day two, when Eddie failed to show up for work, they fired him. They needed a reliable soldier. Turns out, Eddie didn't show up for day two because he was too drunk to go to work. The soldiers in this day didn't have a ton of legal pastimes, so they took to unofficial boxing. As I said, Eddie soon turned out to be an unbeatable opponent and everyone was scared of him. 
especially when what should have been a boxing match turned into a brutal MMA fight with Eddie throwing knees and elbows. Eddie was a fearless opponent and to boot, he could barely remember the night, which was followed with blacking out from the alcohol. While many didn't mind hanging out with Eddie, it turned creepy when Eddie began to forcefully kiss girls he met while walking down the street. He also became that guy at the bar who would attempt to corral girls into a corner to make out with them. Gross. Eventually, an Australian soldier stepped in and contacted Camp Pell to report Eddie. And when the camp looked at their records, it turned out that Eddie had been AWOL for six entire days before they got the call. That means no one even noticed he was missing. For this offense, Ian Shaw reports in his book that Eddie was ordered into 30 days of detention. Apparently, Eddie himself agreed this was the best punishment to get his life right, but Eddie found a way to sneak booze into his detention room, which means he never got sober. In fact, one day he finagled his way out of detention, ignoring a warning shot and later returned after stopping by the PX for some chocolate. After Eddie did his time, he continued with his alcohol problems. Eddie didn't have a ton of friends. He really just seemed like a jerk. But he did have that one friend, Joey Gallo. Joey Gallo found a protector in Eddie, but he had no idea he would become kind of a sounding board for a serial killer. You see, before Eddie got caught, he randomly told Joey, I think I killed a girl. Eddie was like, I'm pretty sure I killed her, but you know, I'm not sure. Then he ordered his friend, check the newspaper, see what's in there. As Joey frantically looked through the newspaper, he found a story about a dead woman. Eddie looked over his friend's shoulder as he read the story for himself and he confirmed to Joey, oh yes, yeah, that's the woman. Holy crap, I guess I did kill her. Mind you, Eddie is an alcoholic, so he fell back on, well, I didn't really know if I killed her. Like, I'm not really sure because I was really drunk. Joey, though, he was a bit taken aback. He didn't really believe Eddie because Eddie was a jokester. Joey thought to himself, I bet Eddie saw this in the newspaper earlier and now he's making this up to spook me. And with that, Joey didn't say anything to anyone. But Eddie kept at it, giving details only the killer would know. And Eddie was upset about something. You see, the article said that the woman hadn't been raped. But Eddie said he did rape the woman. And then he slyly added, yeah, I raped and killed this other woman last week. What in the world? Joey was dumbfounded. Still in disbelief, he simply asked, why did you kill these women? Eddie responded, I don't know. And Joey sat there. He was like, bro, why are you telling me these things? Go confess to a priest or something. And Eddie simply said, I don't trust anyone else but you. Eddie and Joey, during this conversation, they were in a public place and Eddie was being really loud because he was drunk, of course. So Joey caught the glimpse of people staring at him and he would just say, oh, my friend's drunk. He's crazy. Don't mind him. At the end of the night, Eddie simply told Joey, forget everything I said. The following day, after not being able to sleep, Joey met up with Eddie, who was now sober, and Eddie probably knew he had spooked his friend. So he was like, listen, dude, I'm like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. I have kind of a good side and a bad side. And at one point, Eddie described his belief in werewolves. Now, Joey was like, my friend isn't a killer. He's just crazy. And with that, he convinced himself that he didn't really need to report anything because his friend was harmless. Or was he? During the same conversation, Joey asked more questions about the first victim. And then all of a sudden, probably spooked, Joey proclaimed to Eddie that he had no other choice and was going to report him. To which Eddie doubled down, responding, go ahead, but 
Joey chickened out and didn't immediately report Eddie. Between the second and third murder, Eddie Leonowski, a.k.a. the brownout strangler, would strike again, attacking a woman by the name of Kathleen Elliott. However, she was able to break free from him and scream, causing the would-be strangler to run off. The strangler was yearning for another kill. So not even 20 minutes after this failed attack, he attacked another woman, arriving at her home. But before he could cut off her vocals with his hand, she let out a shriek that spooked the man and then he ran off. But he was determined to kill again. And two days later, he struck. But it appeared the strangler was losing his oomph because the next victim survived when the man attacked the woman as she entered her home. But to his surprise, her uncle was home, got a good look at the man and told him to leave. By the way, this is the uncle who would later identify Eddie Leonowski as the man who attacked his niece. When Eddie was brought in for questioning, the lead detective on the Brownout Strangler case had no doubt that Eddie was their guy, at least from their first two clues. His initials were EJL and he walked on his hands. I know, I know. This is not real evidence. But listen, it was a start. And wait, before they spoke to Eddie, they went straight to his tent and boom, yellow dirt everywhere, all over his bed, his uniforms, even his boots. They even found a scrubbing brush with yellow dirt under Eddie's bed. And they found some of his items had blood stains on them. And wait for it, every serial killer's thing? Newspaper clippings of all the victim's stories in the local paper. Eddie was interviewed at 8 a.m. on May 21st, two days after Gladys' body was found. The detective quickly noted that Eddie was a cocky SOB. He thought himself a ladies' man. He said he could easily drink anyone under the table. And on top of that, he was physically strong. Eventually, the detective was like, listen, Eddie, your friend Joey told us everything and Eddie just laughed it off. Eddie told detectives not to believe everything that gullible soldier Joey told them. Eddie claimed he was just yanking his friend's chain. It didn't appear that Eddie would break. So the detectives used a different tactic. They brought out some evidence they had gathered from Eddie's own room. Specifically, they brought items that belonged to Eddie that had that distinct yellow dirt on it. Eddie had an answer for that. He had an answer for everything. He said the yellow dirt came from the kitchen. They were like, okay, why was this yellow dirt on your pants and on in your tent? And Eddie would claim he fell over on Camp Pell in a certain area. Eventually, they were like, all right, Eddie, take us to the location where you fell and take us to the kitchen where we can find this yellow dirt. And Eddie was like, okay, cool. Well, I'll take you there. And he guided the detectives to random locations around the base. And boom, everywhere they went, there was only black dirt. Eventually, when they asked Eddie where he was when Gladys was killed, Eddie began to place himself in the vicinity where she was killed. You see, it was the only area with yellow dirt. And then Eddie relied on his alcoholism to point to empty parts of his memory. Eddie was then placed in a lineup where an eyewitness picked Eddie as the soldier he saw near where Gladys' body was found. While waiting, Eddie asked about the law and how a possible prosecution would follow. And without prompt, Eddie told the detective, quote, I killed her, end quote. Ian Shaw describes in his book, Murder at Dusk, how Eddie went on to describe how he murdered Gladys. He showed no emotion. 
simply said, quote, I met a small girl on the corner, went to her house, then down the street towards Camp Pell. I grabbed her neck. I choked her, end quote. He described how he dragged her body, but was spooked when she began to make gurgling sounds. He said he got scared and ran. He recalled bumping into a soldier and then just running to his tent. When he woke up the next morning, he was like, oh my gosh, what have I done? And he eventually tried to clean up the evidence. After Eddie told them about Gladys, they asked him about Pauline. And without hesitation, he was like, I can help you solve that case. When asked about Ivy McLeod, he said, yeah, I vaguely remember choking someone near a beach. After his three confessions, the confessions were memorialized in writing and Eddie signed the statement. Then he looked at the investigator and said, quote, this is my life, end quote. After news of Eddie's arrest as the brownout strangler was made public, some of his surviving victims came forward. One of them was the one who remembered the birthmark on his penis. When the investigator brought Eddie back in to question him about the birthmark, Eddie, without hesitation, dropped trowel and showed off his man parts. Yuck. Now, before I get into the legal proceedings, it's important to remember that this case took place in the 1940s. And when Eddie was up for a trial, people wondered if this would be an Australian case or an American case. Of course, the U.S. and the Australian government had thought about this. And back in 1939, the Australian Parliament passed the Defense Victims Forces Act. The DVFA allowed the U.S. to request jurisdiction over their own soldiers if they committed an offense in Australia and would allow the prosecution in Australia under U.S. law. And with that, as reported by Ian Shaw, Eddie Leonowski was the first citizen of a foreign country to be tried in Australia by U.S. law for crimes against Australian citizens. Due to the severity of the crimes, this was a death penalty case. And back then, the death penalty was carried out by either firing squad or hanging. However, firing squad was reserved for military-specific offenses, such as going AWOL and desertion. Eddie's trial was held in an Australian courtroom, but General MacArthur, fearing this would turn America into a mockery, limited the access to the court-martial, only allowing a limited amount of people and journalists to attend the trial. Eddie's trial start date and location was also kept a secret. A panel of 11 officers made up the court-martial panel, a.k.a. the jury, and the trial began on June 10, 1942. Oh, and wait, before I continue, I thought this part of history quite fascinating and disturbing, but apparently our boy Eddie Leonowski was like the Ted Bundy of old. While he was waiting for his trial, he got no kidding fan mail from ladies who swooned over him. I still will never quite understand this type of infatuation. Anyway, back to June 10th, everyone expected a trial. Instead, after pleading not guilty, Eddie's defense team moved to have Eddie examined by a medical board. While I'm not 100% sure, I believe this was equivalent to a modern-day sanity board to assess Eddie's mental state. The judge granted the request and the court was closed until further notice while Eddie was evaluated by various professionals. The court reopened on July 13th and the judge only reviewed the findings of the sanity board and Eddie was found sane to stand trial. The trial lasted several days and consisted of 57 witnesses total for both sides. The defense's argument throughout their portion of the trial was to say that Eddie did not become a murderous monster until he was forced into the army. They showed that Eddie didn't want to be in the army, but was drafted. And even after he kicked and screamed and hooed and hawed, he was forced to go to Australia. 
When the trial adjourned, the panel took a whopping 35 minutes to return a verdict. Guilty. Eddie Leonowski was then sentenced to death by hanging. Of his sentence, Eddie said, quote, don't worry about me. I've always been ready to die since I was 16. They say I got a severe sentence, but I don't think so. I think I got out of it lucky with death. Death is a wonderful thing, end quote. Well, on Sunday, November 8th, Eddie lived his last full day. The detective on the Brownout Strangler case took the opportunity to visit Eddie in jail. Eddie, always the sick and twisted jokester, said, hey, if you know any ladies who need a strangling, send them my way. During the meeting, the detective asked Eddie how he did it, how he strangled the women. And Eddie was like, I can show you if you want. The detective, kind of twisted himself, jumped at the opportunity. Both men stood up. Eddie quickly reached across, grabbing the detective's neck and squeezed. As he did this, he explained what he was doing. The detective was shocked at how strong Eddie was, and he actually almost passed out, but Eddie let him go. Eddie explained his body and hand positioning and how he learned to stand strong and firm because apparently one of his first victims caused him to lose his balance, and he swore he'd never do that again. The detective was shook. He then said goodbye and left. Monday, November 9th, 1942, as Eddie walked towards his noose, a person called out, quote, Private Leonowski, in the name of the United States, you are now called upon to have the verdict of the court carried out, end quote. Eddie fixed his head into the noose, his face covered. An anonymous person pulled a lever and the trap door opened. Two minutes later, Eddie's body was released and he was injected with a lethal injection. Seven minutes from the start of the process, Eddie Leonowski was declared dead. Prior notice of the execution was not given to the public. After Eddie's death, the following statement was released, quote, The sentence imposed by the court-martial on Private Leonowski has been approved by the Board of Review and the Commander-in-Chief, and Leonowski has been executed. The sentence was carried out today by hanging, end quote. Eddie's body was buried in Australia and moved a few times, eventually ending up at a cemetery at Schofield Barracks in Honolulu, Hawaii. Before I end this episode, I want to leave you with a quote by Ian Shaw. When he was describing how Australia and the U.S. wanted justice, it was interesting to see the difference. He said, quote, the Australians wanted justice for three women brutally murdered on the streets of Melbourne and for a city that had been held to ransom. The Americans wanted justice for the stain that one man had put on the reputation of an entire army and by extension, an entire nation, end quote. Holy smokes, True Crime Army, what a freaking case. Had you heard of this serial killer before? Anyway, there are so many serial killers out there, many from back in the day who were drafted, but many modern day serial killers who served one tour and then separated and became veterans. If you have a serial killer case that you would like to see me cover, be sure to recommend the case on my website. Reminder, if you want to support the show and listen to more stories while doing so, be sure to check out my Patreon at patreon.com slash militarymurder or subscribe on Apple Premium. Military Murder is a Mama Margot production. Shout out to my Patreon executive producers, Jen, Tina, Alicia, Bob, Falcon 13, Nicole, and Myrtle. The show's newest associate producers are Sherry, Kitty, Shelly, and Laura. The show's newest assistant producers are Rebecca, Ashley, Simone, Alyssa, Cassidy, Adrian, and Janelle. 
The theme music was created by Tyabs. If you would like to make a one-time donation to the show, you can do so by heading over to my website, militarymurderpodcast.com. You can head over to PayPal, where my handle is militarymurderpodcast at gmail.com, or you can also Venmo at Mama Margot. Until next time, remember, you never really know what someone is capable of, so remain vigilant always. You have a fabulous week, and I'll keep digging to bring you another military murder story next time. I was working on her podcast. I don't want to.